We've been in a sermon series since last fall called Inspired, and we've been taking each of the books in the Bible every week as it comes along and trying to give kind of an overview of what, uh, of what is there. And today we're in 2 Thessalonians. So if you've got a Bible with you or if you've got your smartphone or your tablet, look up the Scripture. 2 Thessalonians will arrive there in just a little bit. Sometimes they are called brain teasers. You know what I'm talking about, these word puzzles that kind of grip the mind and challenge you to think through and solve a puzzle. Well, well, I've got one for you this morning, okay? You ready? You're in the main floor of a house, and there is on this panel on the wall three light switches. Now, these light switches control three light bulbs up in the attic. You cannot see the bulbs from where the panel is, and you have to figure out which bulb, which switch corresponds to which bulb, but they're wired randomly. Here's the catch. You can only make one trip up to the attic to see, and you've got to figure it out. So with only one trip up, how are you going to figure out which switch corresponds to which bulb? People sometimes look at the Bible as nothing but a giant word puzzle, a real brain teaser. Now, I think that's to oversimplify or maybe to overcomplicate the matters. Uh, I really think that a lot of the Bible is, is fairly clear and easy to understand. To say that it's all a, a, a muddied mess is, is a cop-out. Much of it is clear. We just don't like what we read. In classic Mark Twain fashion, he is supposed to have said this, it ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me, it's the parts that I do understand. Twain was at best a religious skeptic, but he's spot on. I understand quite clearly enough to conclude that I've got a lot of work to do in my own life regarding the passages that are abundantly clear as to life and behavior. There are, however passages that are difficult to understand. They, they, they sound like a brain teaser. They, they feel like a word puzzle. And this particular book, 2 Thessalonians, has that kind of a feel to it. Now, I'm not sure that the New Testament writers really intended for it to be that confusing. Uh, but with the passing of 2,000 years, with the difference in language, with the cultural uh, differences that we face, I would sure like a little bit more clarity with some of these passages that we read regarding future events. And yet, even though I want clarity, and I suspect you do too, we do have enough to know to be prepared for whatever comes our way. Now, the church in Thessalonica was dealing with physical persecution. The Roman government was persecuting the Christians, and, and, and maybe that's why they sort of misunderstood what Paul was talking about in his first letter to mean that the return of Jesus was imminent. I mean, they thought he was just going to come at any moment. Consequently, many of the Thessalonian Christians stopped working just to wait on that blessed event to take them out of a world of hurt and pain and persecution. If Paul thinks he's going to come, then let's just stop and wait so that we don't have to endure this hardship. So Paul writes a second letter to clarify some things, because that's not what he meant. And he especially has good advice about working hard. Listen to how Paul closes the letter of 2 Thessalonians. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. 
On the contrary, we work night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, if a man will not work, he shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. Paul had no patience for laziness, and he leaves no doubt as to his expectations concerning how we are to spend our time in this world until the Lord returns. He says, if a man doesn't work, don't let him eat. Now notice, Paul didn't say, if a man can't work, don't let him eat. He said, if he won't work, uh, if he's the kind of person that sponges off others while he's waiting for his ship to come in, or in this case, for the Lord to return, don't let him eat. That's not the way we do things. You know, when we talk about sin, we usually talk about the aggressive ones, and those are the ones that come first to our mind. Do not murder, do not steal, do not lie, all of those. We oftentimes gloss over the more passive sins. Laziness is one of those. It's not God's expectation, but we passively tolerate it at times. But Paul says, don't do that. Someday the Lord will return, and life as we know it will be gone forever. Then, we will understand all these things. Until that time, be productive. Make the most of your time, your energy, and your efforts for Jesus Christ. Don't be lazy with your life. So what was it that confused them in the first letter? Paul deals with the laziness and says, you, you know, you've you got to stop doing that because he's not coming immediately. I didn't intend that. But here's what they read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and, and, and it put them in the mind of an imminent return. Look in verse 13 of chapter 4. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left to the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, therefore encourage each other with these words. Now notice first, this passage was written to inspire anticipation, not fear or grief. And Paul says this anticipation that is so important to us is based on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that marvelous triad of events that has shaped who we are. As a matter of fact, folks, it's not just the second coming that's shaped by that, it's, it's everything we do. Uh, when, when we took communion just a few minutes ago, it is based on the death, burial, and resurrection. We celebrate his suffering. Anytime we see somebody baptized, or when you were baptized yourself, it was a portrayal of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When you pray and ask God to forgive you of your sins, you are banking on the promise that comes from his death, burial, and resurrection. 
And when you look to the future with hope and anticipation, it is based on the fact that he rose again after dying. And so we too will be raised. You see, this marvelous three-pronged event covers everything in our life. It covers our past. It covers our present. It covers the entire future. And notice also that those who are alive when he returns, and we don't know when, when, but those who are alive when he returns will witness the resurrection of the dead, the dead bodies that are in the ground. The spirits will come with the Lord. The dead bodies will be raised and made incorruptible, imperishable, uh, as the Bible says, and the spirits will be reunited. And then those of us who are still alive at his coming will be changed, will be transformed into our glorified bodies at that day and time. And that's, and that's what's going to happen. Now, what happens here when people read through this, though, is they get hung up on the word asleep. And they read that word asleep and they, oh, yeah, we die, we just become unconscious to everything else, uh, you know, for, for, forever. That's not what he's using the word for here. In the first century, the word sleep was a euphemism for death. It does not suggest that when we die, we become unconscious. It's just a tender way of wording it. When Lazarus, the dear friend of Jesus, was, was, had been dead four days, Jesus said to his disciples, we're going to go to Bethany because Lazarus is asleep. And they didn't get it at first. They said, oh, well, if he's asleep, he'll get better. And Jesus said, no, 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 he's dead. It is a euphemism for death. Now, that shouldn't struggle. none of us should struggle with that. We do the same thing in our language. I, I found a, a resource this week that said, there are at least 96 English euphemisms for death. 96. We will avoid using the word dead at all costs. And some of them are tender. We talk as, as if a loved one has passed away or passed on or they're resting in peace or they've departed or they've gone home or they've crossed over Jordan or we've laid them to rest. We also have some that are a bit less tender. Bought the farm. Pushing up daisies, six feet under, kick the bucket on the wrong side of the sod, and more. But here's the truth. We are not asleep as in unconscious. We are very much aware after death. Jesus told the story of the rich man and a beggar by the name of Lazarus, and when both of them died, the rich man lifted up his eyes in torment, and he began to carry on a conversation. And in this conversation, it is apparent that he had feelings, he was aware of his surroundings, and his memory was intact. From that story, we conclude that once the body dies, you don't. The Spirit keeps on living. Paul wrote, to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. Jesus promised the thief on the cross next to him who had repented and expressed faith in him. Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus didn't say, today you're going to go to sleep and you're going to be in some kind of a catatonic state until the end of time. He said, today you're going to be with me in paradise. When your physical body dies, you are still very much alive waiting on the ultimate resurrection of the body described in this text. And it says the Lord will descend, there will be a shout and a trumpet blast, and he'll be here. How will that transpire? I don't have the foggiest clue, folks. We do know that every eye will see him and that every knee shall bow before him. And you say, well, when's this going to happen? I don't know. Paul didn't know when he wrote this. As a matter of fact, only God in heaven knows that event. 
And then Paul added this uh, in the first letter, in verse 1. And this should have answered the questions, but, but it didn't. And Paul says, now, brothers, about the times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in the darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are spiritually asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. Like a thief in the night. And some interpret this to mean that Jesus will return at night secretly and scare everybody to death. That's not what Paul is driving at. Now, I was reminded just in the last week that things that go bump in the night scare the living daylights out of you. I was awakened at five o'clock in the morning by a sound in our front room. And uh, so I got out of bed, slipped down the hallway. I don't have my contacts in. I didn't grab a flashlight. I don't know what I was doing, honestly. And I slipped to the front room, and I looked. I peered into the darkness, and I was listening intently. And then I heard the sound again. It was scratching at the door. It was on the outside of the door, much to my relief. And I thought, I know what this is. Sometimes we have birds that try to build nests in the wreaths that we put on our front door. I bet this is a bird. So I crept over to the door, turned on the porch light, and opened the door just about this much so I could see because one time we opened the door and the bird flew into the house, and that's a, that's a problem. And I peered out. There was no bird, but what was there startled me. We had a stray dog on, on, the, on the porch, didn't have any tags, didn't have a collar or anything, and his nose is in the door trying to push his way in. And I did the only thing I knew to do at that point in time. I said, dog, you can't come in. Now, I don't know if I really thought the dog was going to go down to the neighbor's house and say, oh, I can't get in there. I'll go down to the neighbor's porch. I mean, you know, I'm really good in a crisis moment there, you, you know, whispering to a dog. We, we were able to get him around and into the garage. We gave him some water. We called the pet shelter later. But I'm telling you, it's, you your night is done from a standpoint like that. Now, some people think that when Jesus comes back, he's going to come at night scratching at the door to scare everybody half to death. That's not what this means. It simply means he will come unannounced. A thief does not text you that he is on his way to rob your house. And an expectant mother, he talks about an expectant mother here. A mother knows she's going to have a baby when she's pregnant. She just doesn't know the day that that baby is going to arrive. It's the, the baby isn't the surprise. The surprise is when the baby comes. Jesus is saying, it's not a surprise that I'm coming. It's just that no one knows the day or the hour. So stop walking in the dark, he said, and start walking in the light. You are children of the light. In other words, you have the truth. You know the truth. Somehow the Thessalonians, though, had taken this all wrong. And so Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 these words. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us saying that the day of the Lord has already come. 
Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and he will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped or that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. Now, by the time Paul writes, there are rumors that are rampant. One of the rumors that's going around is the Lord's already come and we missed it. And Paul says, don't listen to that kind of stuff. He said, let me tell you what you can count on. Now, what may have been a clarification for the Thessalonians here only muddies the water for me. I don't know if it's clear to you or not, but it it isn't clear yet to me. Paul says there have to be two things that happen before Jesus can return. He said there has to be this spiritual rebellion, a following away, and number two, he says the man of lawlessness is to be revealed. Now, students of Scripture far smarter than I have debated these issues for centuries, not coming to any conclusion. So I, I won't pretend to even give you some kind of an answer, but let me just simply explore. These are the possibilities. Some believe the man of lawlessness has already come, that he's a figure of history. Others believe that he will come in the future. Some believe that it's not a person at all, but rather it's a system or a counterfeit religion or a government that oppresses the spiritual things of God. Some equate Paul's man of lawlessness here in 2 Thessalonians with John's antichrist, from 1 John and 2 John. Now, that makes a lot of sense. There's a lot of overlap in the way they are described. So, it is a term to describe somebody that is opposed to the Lord and opposed to His laws. Down through the ages, there have been many periods of rebellion and falling away. Many have been suggested as the man of lawlessness. Uh, The ancient Roman emperors that persecuted the church were the first ones to be thought as the man of lawlessness. There have been heretical religious leaders that have risen throughout history who have been thought to be the man of lawlessness. Adolf Hitler was supposed to be. Joseph Stalin was supposed to be. Osama bin Laden was supposed to be. The list is endless. What's more, history is full of people who have rejected God's laws and who have been anti-Christ in their behavior. Some of the writings of the new atheist movement will show you how aggressively some people are anti-Christ. And you say, well, if we don't know who this guy is, or if it is a guy, or if it's a government, or anything else, what in the world can I take away from this passage of Scripture? Okay, I'm going to give you three things real quickly that you can take with you. Number one, be warned. This passage is all about warning us. Satan has been, is now, and always will be hard at work to deceive this world about the love, grace, and hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Don't give him an inch in your life. He is a liar. Paul goes on in that same passage in 2 Thessalonians, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth, and so be saved. Now, folks, you got to understand, life in this world is unfair, and it won't be fixed until the end of time, so don't start expecting everything to go your way and that everything will be coming up roses in your life. Someday, the wrongs will be righted. Someday, this 
marred and broken creation will be set right again, but it won't happen until Jesus returns. So be warned, there are tough days ahead. You've had tough days in the past. You're going to have tough days in the future. Nothing's going to change in this world until the end of time. The enemy is hard at work. And only Jesus will be able to rescue you from his clutches. During the devastation of Hurricane Katrina, helicopter pilot Ian McConnell, along with his air crew, were, were flying almost, it felt, around the clock, along with a lot of other air crews, trying to rescue people who were caught in their homes in the flood. And um, much to their dismay, they weren't able to help everyone that they might have. Uh, in a break of the chaos, uh, Ian McConnell was interviewed, and this is, this is a statement that he made in his interview. He said, on our first three missions, we saved the lives of 89 people, three dogs, and a cat. On the fourth mission, to our great frustration, we saved no one, but not for lack of trying. Dozens we attempted to rescue refused to be picked up. He went on to describe how they would ask for food and water, and, and they would warn these folks, some of them sitting on the rooftops of their houses, some that were out of, leaning out of second-story windows as the water was at the base of that second story of their homes, warned them that the floodwaters would continue to rise, that their lives were in danger, that they may not survive, and still they refused to be rescued. And some who had the opportunity perished in the flood. And you think, what kind of a person does that? Here you've got a rescue. You know that things are impending that are going to destroy. What kind of a person refuses to be rescued? I don't know, but God has warned us throughout his word that there is a day coming when life as we know it will cease to exist and only one will be able to rescue you and still people turn away from his message. We have a glimpse at the future in this passage. We may not understand everything, but we got a glimpse. You know what to expect. Do you know the rescuer? Here's the second thing. Be prepared. Roger spent time on this last week, so let me just remind you. These scriptures are here to encourage you to get prepared for the future. Now, one does not need to understand the answer to every question to know what to expect. I don't have to know when he comes to know that he is coming, and I need to be ready. I do not need to know the exact speed of the earth's rotation to expect a sunrise tomorrow morning. I do not need to know the exact pressure created by the water tower to expect that when I turn on my faucet, there will be a stream that comes out. You don't have to know the answer to every question to understand the importance of being prepared. The only question you really have to answer is this. Are you ready? If it happened today, are you ready? Here's the last thing. Be hopeful. Throughout these passages that we've read this morning, Paul has infused the word hope and encourage. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. In that beautiful benediction that we read earlier in, in the service come the words hope and encourage because Paul wants you to understand that this is about who we are in Christ, that, that, that it's not an end, it's a beginning. 
no matter what tomorrow holds, the best is still yet to be. Regardless of the pain and tragedy, the future is brighter than anything we can experience here. You see, everything here, everything here, folks, is temporary. The good and the bad is temporary. What lies ahead is all glorious and wonderful and lasts forever. Therein is our hope. A few years before his death, Peter Jennings of ABC News reported on communism's persecution of the church. And he went on to detail how some communist leaders allowed for a sanctioned church that was sort of okayed by the government under certain restrictions. Unsanctioned churches, or what we sometimes call underground churches, were never tolerated in these communist regimes. But then he went on in this, in this interview to, to highlight the fact that there was one doctrine that the communist regimes forbid even the sanctioned churches to preach, and it was the doctrine of the second coming of Christ. Now, Jennings didn't go on to speculate as to why, but the answer seems pretty obvious to me. The communist leaders understand what we often forget, and that is that the doctrine of the second coming of Christ is dangerous because it inspires hope. When you know that there is something out there, there is some point in time when everything that is wrong will be made right again. You can tolerate and get through just about anything if you have a hope in Jesus Christ. I like what Swiss theologian Emil Bruner said, what oxygen is to the lungs, such is hope to the meaning of life. You can endure almost anything if you have So be warned, be prepared, most of all, be hopeful. Oh, by the way, regarding the brain teaser, I puzzled over that one for a while and uh, didn't come up with anything. I didn't spend a lot of time on it. I just went right to read the answer. (laughs) And uh, and when I read the answer, I thought, well, of course, (laughs) it seems so obvious now. Now, some of you this morning had completely forgotten I gave you that brain teaser at the beginning of the service. Others of you here have not heard a thing I've said in the last 25 minutes because you've been focused on trying to find an answer to that brain teaser. And then there are some of you here this morning who really don't care one way or the other. But I'm going to give you the answer anyway. There may be more than one answer, but this is the best one. Remember, you only get one trip up, three switches, three bulbs. So turn on the first switch and leave it on for five minutes, and then turn it off. And then flip the second switch and go up the stairs into the attic. The bulb that is lit is obviously the second switch because you just turned it on. But the bulb that is warm is the bulb that corresponds to the first switch, and the cold bulb corresponds to the third switch. Pretty easy, isn't it, once you have the answer? Someday, someday this Thessalonian prophecy will come to pass and we'll think, well, of course, it seems so obvious now. But for the moment, we're still a bit confused, a little in the dark. Here's the thing. We only get one trip up. So we got to get this right. When we leave here today, some of you will simply forget all about this concern. You'll get busy 
in your life, and you won't think about the end of time or the coming of Christ or the fulfillment of this prophecy again for some time. Others of you, I hope, will dig even deeper and search for deeper insights into this promise of Christ. And some of you, I fear, won't care one way or the other. But I'm here to tell you this morning, 2 Thessalonians is no brain teaser, folks. This is a matter of spiritual life and death. The words of Paul challenge us to put our faith and hope in Jesus Christ. One of these days, one of these days, he'll return and this hope that has sustained us through the toughest moments of our lives will indeed become a reality. And when hope gives way to reality, that moment of darkness with our unanswered questions will give way and vanish in the presence of the one who is the light of the world. Don't spend another day in the dark. His promise will come. Will you be ready? Do you know the light?